Hi, everybody. This is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have Naria Seoane, and she is a wife, a mother of two, and a teacher of 15 years, specializing in special education and English language arts for grades 7 through 12. Her biracial background, upbringing below the poverty line and depression, kept her hyper aware of her marginalized status, leading to self-consciousness and generalized anxiety. To counter or process these emotional traumas, she has embraced inclusivity, empathy, and kindness. Uh, Obviously, this is an ideal candidate for our podcast because that is the goal of the podcast, is to help people embrace inclusivity, empathy, and kindness. So I'm excited to introduce Naria to you. Uh, How are you, Naria? Thank you for having me. I'm doing just fine. Awesome. And I didn't know how to like throw this in the bio, but you also said you briefly served in the United States Army, and I figured that was a very cool fun fact to also throw out there, so... Um, yeah, I, I didn't uh, I didn't stay very long, but I went through the entire training process, and that was really um, an experience that I will never forget. And and love to throw to throw in uh, when my husband's playing his video games, I'll be like, "Wait, I've been there. That's not how you would do it." So. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and uh, we always ask our guests three standard questions, which is, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Well, I'm glad this is a few days before my birthday, so <laughs> I can still say that I'm 40 years old. Nice. And um, I grew up in many parts of the Bronx, and I'm a millennial. Cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, and you know my brother, Sam, correct? I do. I work with him. Okay, cool. Yeah. So Sam, who's been on the podcast a million times, he is a teacher. Um, do you guys still teach at the same school? We do. And I'm a big fan. Uh, he, it's just great. He always gives, uh, sort of, he adds to the, to the morning announcements with his little update on what's happening in the world. And it's kind of a nice global little perspective for the kids every morning. I think it's kind of cool. That's cool. That's very cool. It's always fun to hear someone who knows him well and like talk about him. Cause you know, we grew up together. <laughs> he actually just left yesterday. So you know, everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know his, I know his larger than life personality and, uh, the double-edged sword, which is usually the good side of the sword. But when we travel, he loves to make friends and I'm very shy. So it's, oh. always, <laughs> it's always interesting. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's so much to unpack and get into, and I, I mean, I loved your bio. Um, I think I'd like to start because I used to teach ESL, and I no longer teach, but obviously we just talked about my brother and you. Um, so now you specialize in special education. Was that your goal all along, or is that something you transitioned into? Actually, I don't specialize in special education right now. I have that license, but I'm actually just an English language arts teacher for okay. grades 7 through 12. Um, but... I did teach with a specialization in special education for about four years. And so um, it informs so much of my teaching as a sort of a lead teacher right now. I still carry that with me and all of that intentionality, you know? Yeah. And I'm curious because I think there's a lot of like different conceptions about what that looks like and what that is. I know I grew up in the 1980s and they always separated like students. So they would just take kids out of our class and then bring them back and stuff. Were you teaching like a specific class or was it that kind of a program? No, I've uh, over the last 15 years, again, only focusing on the first four years as a Mm -hmm. special education teacher. um, I always taught in an inclusive setting where the special education students were included in the normal class environment. And they had a teacher as a specialist that would serve as a secondary teacher 
and I would parrot the lesson given on the board. I would ask questions, leading questions, or really initially, especially the first year, I would ask natural questions from my level of curiosity and, you know, not knowing about the subject that would in turn help the students the most. So it was just really an organic thing for me, but there is a an intention you have to work with in how to tailor the instruction given by the main teacher in order to best fit the diverse classroom that you're facing. Cool. That's and it's really ever cool. changing. Wow. And, and and for English language arts, just because state by state, they change the titles of classes and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Is this what a lot of people just picture as a regular quote unquote English class? Yeah, it's CLA. Absolutely. So language and composition, we read literature, we read nonfiction texts, and we're always inferring and analyzing and checking out vocabulary, engaging in discussion, things like that. O- overthinking essentially my skill set. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, we are two peas in a pod. Um, um, cool. And so this is a just wacky question. I'm not sure if it makes sense to you, but I only taught like a couple different grades, but you teach like a whole wide spectrum of seven through 12. Yes, actually. I mean, I've taught six through 12. Okay. Yes. Well then I'm going to include six actually. So in your like lifelong experience, your 15 years of teaching, uh, what is the biggest plus and minus of teaching a sixth grade class compared to a 12th grade on the way to like graduation class? Um, to be honest, I think in order to last in the department of education, you have to have a fundamental love and enjoyment of your daily interaction with the students. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I, I do love what I'm doing. So I wouldn't say, you know, that any one particular grade was worse than the other. I am fond of the sixth graders because there's still a sense of innocence among them. Like they look to you very lovingly, almost like a parental figure. And I really, I appreciate that aspect of it as much as I appreciate teaching them the content. When you move forward and teach older students, you serve less of that parental and more of like a coach. Mm -hmm. And so there's a separation, but like a motivational aspect to it. And you both have an It also differs from the middle grades because there's no power struggle in the 12th grade. You both have an understanding of why you're there, what needs to be accomplished in the classroom, and the overall goal that everybody wants to leave in June. Wow. That's a great answer. Um, (laughs) Thank you. That's so cool. And, um, you know, we interview like just everyone on this podcast and I meet people all over and I live in uh, Phoenix, Arizona now, which I just had these, you know, house guests visit from all over the country and they were surprised that I was pretty accurate when I said this place is as purple as it gets. Like it's, it's a just hodgepodge of different people. You really can't like pin us down as one thing or the other, which is now unique because I would say most places feel kind of polarized. So I'm just curious, like half of the people I know would say that education has gotten worse in the last 15 years. And the other half would say, no, 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 it's much, much better. Do you feel like you're in one of those two camps? Are you in the middle? Like how, how do you think just in the 15 years you've been in the force, like how has it changed? So I want to just start off with my hesitation of speaking in a generality about this topic, because I can very much only speak from my experience. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, of course, over the last 15 years, I've gotten much better. I've (laughs) seen others improve around me as well. But the only other 15 year time period I would be able to connect it to would be my own experience in the public school system. And I think generally speaking, I had a pretty I had a decent academic experience, but, but I want to overlay that with, you don't know what you don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, like the allegory of a cave. Like, I think it was pretty good. I, I seem to have amounted to something 
amongst my family and peers. So it seemed like it was okay to me, although certainly there are more gaps than I'd like there to be in the things that I know. So, but, but to speak to the overall progression of, you know, education in our society, I'm not, I'm not wholeheartedly certain that I know the answer to that question. That's cool. And I, I definitely respect that. And um, I, I'm always interested just because like, I, I'm rooting for everyone, no matter mm-hmm. who you are uh, to, get better to become more self-aware. And then obviously like the three things you stated better than I could embrace inclusivity, (laughs) empathy, and kindness. So on just those three notes, um, I have personally decided just upon witnessing my friends, kids who are growing up, I have children, but they're way too young to, you know, do this with. Um, But I think the average kid I meet is like nicer than the average kid was when I was in high school. Like I I read about bullying. I understand like Mm. and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just curious, like and I know you're local and you're you can only speak about your experience. But do you think like uh, this generation that's coming up right now is is pretty exceptionally nice or are they just pretty normal? I've I've read things that indicate that they're having a prolonged innocence. Right. So that's sort of the the phrase that I've heard about it. And I kind of like it. I see it. I'm in a great environment. That school in Flushing is outstanding. It stands out among its peers. The school that I taught at in the South Bronx for the first 10 years of my career, that was a quote unquote failing school. It was profiled on like waiting for Superman documentary. And so some might argue that that was a really terrible environment, but while it definitely certainly had its challenges on the administrative end, I adored all of the students, problematic as they may have been. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think overall that students are just, I don't know if they're nicer, but they're just nice in general. I just, I like them. That's so cool. I'm so glad. I mean, we're only 10 minutes <laughs> in this interview and I'm so glad you are in education and you're teaching because it's just, uh, <laughs> it breaks my heart that like some of the best and brightest people out of like economic incentives will not become teachers in our country like they're just you know stoically going to law school going to medical school going to any school program that promises a higher paycheck and i just think that's terrible because you're brilliant you're cool you're like fun and you're working with our children and that's the most important people to me you know oh can i piggyback on that idea and just discuss that it's not so much that okay so i feel like i'm very fortunate in that teaching place to my certain skill set, right? But I didn't choose to become a teacher because of my great altruism, although I have that. (laughs) I only chose to become a teacher, if I'm being 100% honest, is because of my husband. See, where I grew up, I didn't have a great awareness of the many careers possible, certainly. Um, to me, all of my teachers were were of a different race than me, so they didn't look like me. And I expected you had to go to college your whole life to become a teacher. I just really was isolated and didn't know what there was to do. And so I was I actually got my broker's license and became an insurance agent and a successful one. I was a uh, manager for a commercial insurance agency in White Plains, New York, and I had a million dollar book of business that I was in charge of, and it was it was excellent. Um, but only only after having that position and that job did I start to learn about the different careers available and the availability of transitioning into those careers. So I was a New York City teaching fellow, and thank God for the fellow program. Um, but my husband was also a teaching fellow. And so seeing him do it taught me like, oh, I, I too could become a teacher. That's not a career or occupation that's excluded from people who look like me or have my experience. Wow. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And that is kind of, I mean, this is great because you're segueing into like where I wanted our conversation to go next, which is mm-hmm. 
so okay my son is biracial but he lives in thailand so he's not gonna face what i thought he was gonna face which is growing up biracial in america i wonder what their plight is in china in thailand yeah i mean it's it's interesting because he will definitely receive like stuff it'll be weird he'll get like half oh that's exotic like you're half white wow and then he'll get half like oh you're not fully us you know but um, right so it'll be interesting but that's you know that's his dharma that's his like path to go down Mm-hmm. Should we be mixing everyone in the like? I know again, like I my as I ask all these questions, of course you can't answer for like the world and you don't know, but it is interesting to hear your perspective. So just <laughs> okay. like you know that giant grain of salt in your answering process, I've always wondered like should we just be mixing kids up like no matter what? So like you take all the kids within twenty five miles of like a school in the Bronx and you just throw an exact like random random mix in so it doesn't matter how high income or low income your parents are what races you are what mix or do you think like no you should go to like your local school and like the funding should just be the same and stuff like that like where like how would you explain your philosophy without those kind of talking points i think that so many so many things need to be the same i feel like in general there should be a certain equity um in the schooling system, I, just to start off, I'd really love to start off on a personal anecdote. There's yeah, a school please. on the corner. There's a school on the corner of my street. It would be exceedingly in, uh, easy for me to drop my children off at that school from grades K through five, and not have a really frantic morning. Um, but instead, for the last thirteen years that my children have been in school early every morning to get them to school in the neighborhood over which has a better schooling system and thus a better local public school um so and i make that trek because it's just so important to me that they go into a school that has a decent reputation so because i know that school really for me anyway it's been the vehicle for the most social progression right so um i wouldn't dare send them to a failing school though i feel like in general i should be able to i should be able to send my children to the school that is on the corner of my street and it'd be just as excellent as the school in the next town yeah yeah see it's so interesting because my my daughter my son is seven he lives in thailand my daughter is two she lives with me and then my wife is pregnant with another uh, daughter we know for sure so congratulations thank you thank you so i'm really excited i'm excited to raise two kids at home i love my son i wish he uh, spent a lot more time with me and uh but with these two we have a local school we have everything you describe but we had to move like we moved from one quote-unquote local school that we didn't like to live literally near another local one and that's my like i don't want to pay for private school i just think like i'm an american citizen i pay yep. property taxes this is dumb couldn't like, agree more yeah it's sort of a place of privilege for us both that we understand how to navigate the system in that manner because there are so many people that their only option or the only option they are aware of is to go to the school that's closest to them, you know, because there's no one to pick up the child. There's no one to direct the child there's, for whatever number of reasons or for their trust and faith in our educational system that every school is going to be equitable, which the reality is that it's not. So, like, I just I just hate the inequity of it all. Totally. And that's such a good point. And it is it's it's really interesting. Like, I when you're growing up, you don't know. Like, I didn't know that I was growing up in, like, an affluent town and going to a nice school. You know, I had, like, no idea. And then Mm -hmm. very suddenly at either seventh or eighth grade, I was just like, oh, oh, wow. Like, oh, I know what it was. It was, like, our first uh, trip to, like, a a tournament at another school. And, like, you're just like, Mm -hmm. whoa, like, this is your school? Why are there, (laughs) you know, like, I remember, like, metal detectors at someone's school. Metal detectors, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then that's also, like, 
uh, hard for me is too, is like, when do I tell my kids that like, first of all, should I tell a kid you're privileged? Because like, I don't know if they're privileged. I know like the national consensus and I know my opinion, but like, do I want to label them in either direction? You know, like these are all. I, so like, I sort of, I feel like I so trite sometimes, but the reality of my belief is that I wouldn't want them to feel burdened by the label of privilege either because I also experience privilege. Like we all have privilege in different areas. It's not like, it's not a blanket that covers every aspect of your life. Suffering is so subjective. So whereas they might experience privilege in one avenue, there could be any number of others that they do not experience privilege. So I don't, Yeah, that's just, I don't, and I, I just hate the divisiveness of it. Like I'm I'm like maybe born in the wrong era. I'm all like, kumbaya, let's all be nice. There's one human race. But that doesn't mean that like I'm super, like I'm not a sweetheart and, you know, the best at all times either. But I just, my intention is never to, to subject anyone. With, with intentional subjection, that's where I have a big problem. And it's because I feel like so much of my existence has been on the other end of that. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm like, just don't treat anyone poorly and be a nice person and, you know, work with what you were given because everyone was given something, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. And I'm, I love that you just took us into the exact, like, other side of this podcast, which is the philosophy of metaphysics, meaning, like, how much of what you're doing now here matters versus is there another quote unquote here, there, and all that. So my first question for you would be, did you grow up with a religion or with a spiritual philosophy about life and death and the meaning of life specifically? So I didn't have a religion imposed on me, but our household was not organized enough for that. Uh, but, but also I think their religion was imposed upon them. And so they just kind of definitely went in the other direction. Um, as in terms of general philosophy, uh, uh, philosophy, excuse me. Um, I'm never 100% settled on my opinion, but my overall gut feeling is that there is a higher power, but I do not know its correct name. And I do not feel arrogant enough to say that my belief is the only correct way because there are so many things about the world that I don't understand. Yeah, I I really respect that. That's cool. Yeah, I think even when I was like 17 and I was making like fake band albums for like my like doodles, I would be like, Mm -hmm. I want to thank the higher power that exists, but it shouldn't be called God. (laughs) Like I remember being like super like, I'm a punk rock, like, you know, teenager. Definitely an emo child as well. Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny. Can you imagine an emo <laughs> child in the Bronx? Okay. During yeah, yeah. the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't. But now that we're talking, I can. So that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm two years older than you. So I definitely understand like the era and all that. Um, so what, uh, have you ever had a profound spiritual experience? Have you ever had like any experience that really like rocked your, oh, this is all there is. It's just this like living on earth thing. Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Yes, when my father died, and then subsequently years later when my mother died. When my father died, I have to say, so, okay, so eventually this conversation is going again to, to get to my idea that I deal with a mental um, health disorder and a, a difficulty with emotional regulation, right? So that's where this is going to go to. But um, 
my father and my mother were absolutely obsessed with me. There was no negative internal voice created in my head by my parents. You know, like they, Mm -hmm. they were absolutely, I was always the most beautiful, the most intelligent, the smartest, the best, that though I lived and shined in mediocrity in real life, you know, like my parents, according to them, I was everything. So, um, I just feel like when my father passed and I didn't hear from him, I was like, there's, that's it. Like if there was any way, any way possible for one of my parents to get a message to me in some form or manner, it would have happened with a certainty. Like, that's not to say we didn't fight. We, we didn't have disagreements. We were very close. We were exceedingly close. So I feel like fundamentally, if there were an opportunity for them to reach out to me and it hasn't been done, then there is nothing more than this life, which is probably myopic, but very small in view, but that's my opinion. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> do you want there to be more? I don't need there to be more. Cool. No. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, and then, yeah, because you brought up mental health and everything, what um, is mental health just being talked about more now because we're finally ready to admit that it's a thing and we have to actually uh, respect it? Or is mental yeah, health um, also on the uh-huh. rise? Like, do you see what I'm trying to ask? I don't think it's on the rise. Okay. I think it's a thing that has existed. And I think it's so important to acknowledge the widespread occurrence of trauma within these marginalized communities, myself a member. Mm-hmm. I feel like after doing reading on the National Alliance of Mental Illness and my own personal experience over the last 20 years, I suffered in silence with a deep-rooted sense of loneliness because from my experience, no one else experienced the hardship or, you know, being stuck with racial anxiety or feeling like in a constant negative loop. No one verbalized that experience to me or around me. So I just felt this disconnect, like what is wrong with me in comparison to others, which was only made worse to be in an environment where I was often othered for my likeness to more like emo music and, and white vernacular and things like that. Right. And that was not completely accepted in my community is like, the way to behave or speak. <laughs> yeah. And when you were, cause you've switched where you teach when you were teaching in the community that you grew up in, yes. did you ever want to take a side, a boy or a girl like you and just be like, I, I get it. Like, I'm really sorry. I had, I, I was the specialist of doing that. My principal's office was directly next door to mine. And I would, with complete liberty, walk into his office and go, Hey, can I please have a second with this kid in here? And I'm like, dude, you cannot come to school high every day. You cannot do this. Like what happened to the baseball team? Like what is going on? Like you've got so much more you've got to do in here and none of this is fun and nobody wants to be here. And you think I want to teach you to infer about a character you'll never meet again (laughs) when I know you're tired and like you've got stuff going on, dude. We are like commiseration is like my brand. Awesome. (laughs) So I think that's why I get along with the students quite well. We have a lot in common. (laughs) That was definitely my thing. I volunteered before I taught in um, Mm -hmm. the worst Oakland, California school district. Mm -hmm. And that was a hundred percent my strategy. And the other volunteers would be like, how'd you get them to talk? Why are you? And I was like, the first thing I always do is I admit that school sucks. I just like straight up tell them that like I hated every second of it, but I went and I left with a graduate degree and, you know, I mean, a, a degree. Right. And that made all the difference in my life. So I'm just like, you have to learn how to put up with the parts of society you don't like because society is a thing and it's it's way bigger than us. So it breaks my heart that within my immediate family, 
there is a distinct divide between those who attained their education and those who did not. Those who did not are currently incarcerated and living in poverty and prison and drug use and physical violence and everything. Like, it's just... It's terrible, really. And so there's all this survivor's guilt to feel with it. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I, I felt pretty I felt pretty conflicted leaving the teaching environment that I was in because I, you know, I heard from so many students that, especially English teachers, if I don't know if you think about it, but English teachers don't look like me either. Um, mm-hmm. half black, half uh, Latina. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. middle-aged woman, you know, like that's not the demo usually. So I just have always been able to trade on that currency, I'd say. That's cool. And you brought up, um, like you alluded to it with a kid and then you brought it up with incarceration. I'm a like unapologetically anti-criminalizing uh, drug use uh, person. So, I mean, I just want to make sure you know that before I ask you this question. So I am not asking you a loaded question, but I just want to be upfront. Okay. What is your opinion? Because you're, I'm not from the neighborhood you're from and I didn't grow up there. And so when I say this, a lot of people are like, but you don't get it. Like you can't just do that. I still feel like, Drugs isn't the problem. Drugs is a really obvious solution to the problem when you're that old, like like when you're that young, I should say. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what do you think uh, we should be doing vis-a-vis the fact that children have access to drugs at younger and younger ages and there's still people trying to sell them to them? And especially with like, uh, I know New York like has legalized it more recently, but, you know, there's billboards advertising pot like everywhere where I live now. So it's like hard to tell kids like, don't do that. Um, what are your thoughts on all of that kind of stuff? Um, typically, sadly, I lead with fear. And so thus, I am fearful of the effect that um, the widespread uh, acceptance of marijuana is going to have on our society. However, <laughs> exactly what you said and what you described as the drug use being a um, really ridiculously easy and immediate solution to an underlying cause right? Mm -hmm. There is a, there are a number of issues that are trying to be fixed in in an immediate way. So you see the urgency of the situation. And so knowing several people in that population, in my own family, my family were heavy drug users, including my mother, smoked marijuana at nauseum all day, every day to survive the day. And it's really it's always really easy. And I feel also personally attacked when like people just say like, Oh, why are they doing that? Like, you know, like such a, they're such bad people because they're doing that. And I just feel like Mm -hmm. these people are suffering. My mother was orphaned at 16. She's one of nine children. Like, she, you know, like she just didn't get her education till very late in life. And so she was a lot of things, but she was also someone who suffered her own experience and no guidance and used marijuana as a way of immediately dealing with whatever struggles that she wasn't verbalizing to me either or anybody. She had like no one to verbalize it to. There were no parents. Both of her parents died. Um, one of them killed themselves because they heard voices. That was her mother. And her father was an alcoholic who eventually walked in front of an MTA bus. Like, so like, these are people, I am people, we are all like, I am the voice, right? Of the marginalized. Like, I I don't want to be that. But like, I feel at this turning point, you see, like you asked earlier, whether or not it was more prevalent or always existed. And that's why we're talking about it. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's always existed. 
That's why we're talking about it. And that's why we must talk about it because the silence and stigma surrounding it left my entire traumatized family feeling very isolated and judged upon. And everyone, and I feel like people look to people who suffer as if I have a personal failing, but like there was no personal failing in growing up in poverty to uh, an orphaned mother with no support system in the South Bronx without a great school system. Like, you know, like there's no personal failing in so many of the things that are really cemented in who I am. I mean, I've done the reading nature versus nurture. No, 70% of who you are is based on your zip code. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) like, it's it's just I really I really do feel like people are like why don't you just focus on the positive and I'm like it's my automatic feelings they skew negative automatically like before I developed a vocabulary to understand what was happening I couldn't I didn't know what was happening and so I just felt like frantic and isolated and alone and I feel like we must speak about it because I'm a good person and empathetic person and I love my job and I try to be socially conscious and treat people fairly and you know like all of these great things but I suffer and so I shouldn't I don't want to continue to suffer in silence because I mean historically that's what the Hispanic community has been doing and it's not working out so well they only these things only get worse if they're not spoken of and addressed with sincerity I mean I've suffered nightmares like I'm sorry you're just you know no no I'm (laughs) I'm so with you um and you kind of, it's weird because I asked this question – I definitely asked this question to a few different uh, guests, but not that often. And so when I ask it to you, it's going to be a little different, which is I always like to ask people how they deal with, like, anger because mm-hmm. I think that's a huge issue in American culture, like, very specifically. Like, mm-hmm. we have an anger problem, our culture. Yes. <laughs> not every person. You don't t- sound like you do or do not have an anger problem, so that's not why I'm asking you. Mm-hmm. But I am curious, like, it's infuriating – to see what you've seen over and over again and to grow up in it, which is like, oh man, those neighborhoods are bad. We should do something about it, but we never do anything. <laughs> and and like throwing money at it isn't going to necessarily work. And like, I'm not asking you for a solution, but I am curious when that anger bubbles, like that resentment, that just feeling of like, why are we just like, like the zip code thing you said was exactly how I would phrase it. Um, how do you deal with that? Like, what's your, what's your coping strategy for that? Well, sadly, as I wrote in in the bio that I submitted, all of that has played a part in my generalized anxiety. Like I have to practice positive coping strategies to deal with the ramifications of all of that, because that's what my experience was. So um, being a reading teacher, it really falls in line with what I needed, this type of mental distraction, the type of mental energy that's required for me to do this extensive and analytical reading is perfect for me because it distracts me from my automatic negative thought loop and it takes the mental energy away from that. Do you think we could teach young children that or do you think you have to be old enough? Like, you know what I'm trying to ask? Like, what is an age of intervention that would actually work? I think as is now, students need to learn how to read very early. The earlier, the better. I feel like probably the best age of intervention would start being in middle school. If I had to pick a particular time, that's when they start being more well aware of the self and society. So I would say that that was the time. I do a lot of like some, I don't do it hypocritically, like the name implies virtue signaling, but like all of the things that I teach do have the hope of like a moral thread that's running through it to teach, you know, like pro-social behavior. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I've thought about that phrase so many times because I grew up in the Bay Area and the Bay Area is like the 
capital of virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. But I also see a second side to that, which is like, okay, so you volunteered for all the wrong reasons. You needed a beach cleanup just because you wanted to like show off how cute your shirt is and like take photos for Facebook. Mm -hmm. You still went to a beach cleanup. Like you still did do a net positive thing. Mm -hmm. So I kind of look at it that way. Like if you're, if you're just saying something that's silly, that's not going to help. But you know, um, I do think like more positive posting on social media, more positive, like, Hey, you know, I was at this thing and I did this. Like if we're all silently good people, right. the, the, <laughs> that's a big problem. And it actually gets yeah. funny. Cause it goes back to the, you know, you don't know what you don't know thing. Like yeah. how are you, you know, cause I start to wonder like, Oh God, is like morality going away? Like is America falling to the wayside? Because like, the only time I watch TV is if I'm at like a gym or something and it's on like the free TV and it's always just negative news. It's just never mm-hmm. anything positive, which is full circle. Why I stopped paying attention. And then I'm also afraid that if I stop paying attention, you know, like the third Reich's going to rise and we're, so it's like this, this loop. I did recently get this idea that there's something missing from not having like a regularly scheduled program to watch with your family. I adored family matters and full house and, you know, like however problematic, you know, they may have been for whatever reason, they still were like, we're a family and we love each other. And I was okay with that message. So, um, I definitely watch with my children, like, we want, we've seen the Bernie Mac show. We've seen Everybody Hates Chris. We've seen Full House. We've seen, um, you know, like Party of Five. Like, well, I'm going through the millennial <laughs> educational system with him, you know? I have a 13-year-old awesome. right now. Yeah. Yeah, I meant to ask you how old they were because like, I'm sure you're dealing with, like, so do they, are they going to attend your school? Oh, God. Can I? Okay, humble brag right now. Yeah, so, yeah, cool. my son... Um, was accepted into the Academy of Finance and Enterprise, which is a, a level nine school out of 10 in the city. It's wonderful. Wow. There's, it's, it's, they're few in its class, right? So there, I'm excited about that, about his opportunities that are going to be given there. Um, and they're focused on their business programs and their internships. And I, on a side note, I'm equally excited about my daughter, who was so lucky to be accepted into the gifted and talented program. She's in one of five gifted and talented schools in the entire city. Nice. And this happened just because her teacher nominated her and she was awarded a position in the lottery. So it was just like so fortunate for us. I I just, I'm so excited for, this is like a, a year of transition for them. And I'm so excited for what's ahead of them and really optimistic because they're in such good environments, you know? That's so cool. And you just reminded me that like, I don't think only cause I take it for granted cause my brother teaches in this in New York. Mm-hmm. And so I know how good the system is there and like how I many of these opportunities exist and stuff, but I don't think a lot of other metropolises are doing that. And I don't think there's a lot of other like cities. Phoenix has something a little similar cause they have like the private basic schools, mm-hmm. but they're still private. Like it's not quite the same. So right, that's really cool. Um, I always give my guests like the floor at the end. So just kind of give a positive message or whatever message you want to our audience. So um, is there anything you want to leave everyone with? Um, yes. So, okay. I just want to say that, Um, people suffer in ways that are often unseen and unspoken of. And so it's really um, much better if you lead with the type of compassion and empathy that I've been speaking about in the interview. Um, And also if you are suffering from any sort of mental disorder or difficulty with emotional regulation, um, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So please make sure that you speak to someone about it. Um, There have been studies and 70% of cognitive-based therapy treatments are effective. You can do things like reading, which I love as an English teacher or, you know, singing or walking in the sun or, definitely getting enough sleep and just, you know, I hope wellness to all.
That's so nice of you. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Sam is our booking manager. He, you know, he suggested you. I was excited. And you've just blown my mind. Thank you so much. You're so good at explaining things that get people on edge and nervous and people feel like defensive about it or, you know, like, and, and you're just, I can, I'm so glad that you're working in the field you are and that you're doing what you're doing. And it did not sound like a humble rag to me. It just sounded like every parent should be happy as all hell when their kids are doing well. So I'm really happy for you. And I wish you continued success and uh, hopefully I'll get to meet you someday because I do fly out to TCM. So, and to everyone else listening at home, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Coffin Talk. The best way to support the show is just to head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. I send out one letter a week. It's a friendly philosophy email that is point is to lift you up and help you get through your week. We love all of you and thank you again, Naria. And my name is Mike Oppenheim and we will see you soon.